Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. After today's main interview, I will be answering a listener question from Andrew. What are the mental tricks or ways that you seek to understand or empathize with someone's viewpoint who you disagree with? Great question. Now to today's topic of prayer. Everybody thinks that they know what prayer is, and they are partly right. But what counts as prayer? Does prayer always need to be asking for something? Can silent meditation be prayer? Is prayer always in some sense bodily and physical, or is prayer a merely spiritual activity? When did prayer first enter the story of humanity, millions of years ago, or only after verbal language developed? Did Neanderthals pray? Is it worth looking into the prayer practices of other religions? And if we do, what might we learn? This is the kind of stuff that we're talking about today. Uh, The conversation is based on a fantastic book that our guest wrote with her husband called Prayer, A History. There's a link to it in the show notes, and I highly recommend it for anybody who ends up enjoying this conversation. One little note to help get your bearings so that you don't get lost midstream. A character who comes up a couple times in our conversation is William James. He was a psychologist and religion researcher around the turn of the 20th century. His most famous book is called The Varieties of Religious Experience and is both incredibly influential and even today very readable and enjoyable 
and I highly recommend that book as well. Now, to introduce my guest today, I will read from her official bio at Smith College. Quote, Zaleski regularly teaches philosophy of religion, introduction to world religions, the Inklings, the Catholic philosophical tradition, heaven, hell, and other worlds, the afterlife in world religions, and seminars on C.S. Lewis, William James, and John Henry Newman, end quote. If that doesn't sound to you like my own dream life, then you don't know me very well or haven't been listening to this show very long. Um, in fact, I get in a couple questions about those inklings, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and the others, toward the end of our interview because Carol and her husband also wrote a good book about the inklings. I left my chat with Carol both wanting to study with her and then also wanting to add her into my family as an honorary aunt or godmother or something like that. That's how much I love this. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's get into this episode. So, Carol, you wrote this book with your husband all about prayer. It's 400 pages long. In order to do that, you got to know what prayer is, right? Then there's not necessarily agreement on that. So, in your mind, what is prayer? Well, I don't know that we knew what it was when we started, and <laughs> uh, the mystery deepened rather than clarifying itself yeah. as we went along. But I mean, this on the simplest level, I don't think we would have changed our mind about this. We would have just viewed prayer as a form of communication with sacred beings, with God or the gods or ancestors in some cases, holy people across some divide that separates the sacred from the profane. Mm. But um, that's that's just the beginning of thinking about it. I mean, you can think about the etymology as well of, of our English word prayer. As I understand it, it comes from French, uh, into Anglo-Norman, into medieval English, from a word that, that really just means to make a request. So in other words, that boils down to, to taking petitionary prayer to be the kind of most basic form of prayer. And some people don't like that idea because, as you know, there's there are sort of philosophical and theological problems about petitionary prayer. But that does seem to be the most basic understanding. And, you know, if you look it up in the dictionary, that's what you'll get. A request. Yeah, I, I really want to make sure we talk about petitionary prayer later, because one thing I'm aware of doing this show is those theological and philosophical problems. But I'm also really drawn to just the humanness of petitionary prayer, the, the fact that it springs forth almost reflexively, and what that might tell us about ourselves, and maybe about God. But I'm going to I want to save that for later when we have a bit more background. What do you mean when you write that prayer is both spiritual and visceral at the same time? When human beings are praying, they're in their bodies. When we pray, we're performing an action, and that involves the body. And, and in the history of prayer or any kind of global study of prayer, what you see is people doing things like dancing, singing, certain special kinds of eating or drinking. But I think even when we're talking about silent prayer, there's internal dialogue, the brain is involved, the way you sit, kneel, stand, fall down on the floor, all of that 
is an expressive form of prayer. Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty uneventful and not that helpful silent prayer session this morning. It was not very spiritual. It definitely was visceral because I was sitting still. I was trying mostly in vain to calm my mind. Um, <laughs> and then there are the other times where it is more spiritual, right? Where there does seem to be more of a connection. Uh, and so that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, you know, the book's called Prayer, A History. And how mm-hmm. early, I, I want to spend a little time on how early can we look at that history? Like maybe starting with this question, in your mind, what what was the first prayer? Like when did prayer become possible? Um, first, I should say that Prayer or History was the publisher's choice for the title. <laughs> so common. And as you can see, if you pick up the book, you see there's all kinds of typology, and, and yeah. it's, it's more like a, a, an exploration. than it, It's certainly not just a straight chronological history. Totally. Um, no, and, it's more actually, like a William James. It's more like the varieties of prayer. Yeah. Right? Than it is yeah. really history. But you do have a chapter on this kind of going back as far as we can go, and I, yeah. I find that yeah. so interesting. It is interesting. It's also very controversial because you're dealing with, you know, paleolithic fossil evidence, which is notoriously difficult to interpret. Sure. Um, So um, if you push it back far enough, you know, to, uh, I don't know, middle paleolithic era, Neanderthal, Homo erectus types, a lot of fossil evidence is burial sites. It's not the only kind of fossil evidence, but burial sites could be very good clues to the possibility of prayer because, uh, for one thing, um, taking care of your dead once they're dead and can't really cause you any obvious trouble, it's kind of a superfluous activity. And, you know, if, if you're decorating them in some way, that suggests some kind of sense of uh, a kind of meaning transaction going on there. Of course, you know, we, we never we don't have any texts that go with this, obviously. So we don't really know what people were thinking. Right. And if it's just a matter of burying the dead with some flowers, that could have just sort of happened, you know. But it does seem like, at least in some of these sites, these burial sites where you have not just some flowers scattered, um, but feathers and shells and, and things like that, that, that look really intentional. There you, you can't help but but speculate. I guess if you move a little closer to our time and to our more direct ancestors of, uh, you know, the, we're called the Cro-Magnon, then it's more elaborate. Um, again, what they did for the dead is more elaborate. There's a sense of art and aesthetic. I mean, just, you know, the, the cave art too. Right, in France that, and, and elsewhere, yeah. Yeah. Um, and those paintings are twenty to 40,000 years old is my understanding, mm-hmm. depending on the cave. Yeah. So just beauty, just um, not only caring for the dead, but but caring to make objects not just functional, but beautiful, and to draw pictures of human and animal figures that seem like they're telling a story of some kind. All of those things seem to be the sort of things that we see as, as fundamental and primally religious. That is, those of us who who study religion and care about religion, we do have a tendency to see it everywhere. So that could be an occupational hazard that we may or may have some tendency to read it into things. But I'd rather um, err in that direction. I, than, I've read quite a bit the about the, the cave paintings in southern France, and the scholarly consensus does seem to be that these caves were used and these paintings were part of uh, what we would call now religious rituals. Although yeah, they, would, so. they wouldn't have called them that. They... It would have all been part of the hunt and the coming of age of their teenagers and whatever. But 
right. if we're going to use today's language, you would say, no, these are religious rituals. You mm-hmm. know, the, that painting of the kind of man figure with the sort of the deer antelope the head. Shaman. Yeah. 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 That shaman figure. I mean, they're, yeah. they're just the best explanation seems to be something religious. And then mm-hmm. uh, moving forward to even closer to us, the earliest cities, right? Um, with ziggurats and, and what do we what do we know from that kind of archaeology of early human civilization? Yeah, well, I think the cultures that created the ziggurats also had very sophisticated astronomical knowledge. Any attempt to have a coherent map of the cosmos seems to me to be a fundamentally religious kind of activity. Hmm. In other words, early science is, right. uh, and even contemporary science has this quality of the idea seems to be that our minds have some capacity for harmony with the, the, the outer world and that the outer world and the inner world have, an, have a relationship. And it's, if that weren't true, we couldn't, we couldn't pray to higher powers um, if they were fundamentally alien to us. So it's the dawn of religion and the dawn of reason at the same time, hand in hand. Making me very proud to be religious, listening to you talk about it that way. <laughs> um, I wanted to run this by you, too. It's not in your book, but I've read it elsewhere. Um, the, the fairly recently late sociologist and just kind of multidisciplinary thinker, Robert Bella. Oh, yeah. His, in his book, uh, Religion and Human Evolution, he makes a pretty compelling case that religion predates language as we know it. One one earlier theory that was popular at some point was that you can't think without language. So language right. must come before cognit- really complex cognition. And he's like, well, here's all this evidence against that. We have all of these basically early tool makers who taught each other through mimesis, through mimicking each other. Right. And, and there's evidence that they had other kinds of sort of bodily and sound rituals. And, and they basically could pray to God together for a hunt before they could use words, like before they could yeah. have the kind of language that we have today. And of course, this is not certain. Um, but that seems to me to kind of play into the work you've done. I'm, I'm wondering if you've thought about that theory or, or how that would kind of tie into how you see the origins of prayer. I'm very sympathetic to his to this idea that that there was a prelinguistic ritual and and again that's sort of just playing that is unnecessary yeah. ceremonial and aesthetically interesting activities. I don't know if he talks about this, but all these studies of of infant cognition, infant morality you know, looking at pre-linguistic infants. Of course, as soon as you have a child you can interview, they're already contaminated. So it's very hard to get right. at the pure. You can't get at the pure experience of an infant, just like you can't get at the pure experience of Homo erectus. But it's it's really uh, irresistible to to project backwards and to imagine and to maybe even feel some sort of nostalgia for the kind of experience they might have had before it got chopped up into discursive language. Totally. I mean, yeah, so you can't get pre-discursive language. There has been a lot of really interesting work, though, on these sort of the handful of remaining tribal societies that are yeah. still basically hunter-gatherers or that are in very mm-hmm. early agricultural stages. You know, it's it's never quite clear how closely Aboriginal you know, Australian tribes match 
what Homo erectus was doing or, you know, hunter-gatherer pre-agrarian Homo sapiens 20, 30,000 years ago. But it's closer than whatever we're doing now, obviously. And there's some really interesting kind of stuff that people have pulled out of that. There's a little bit of, of this in your book, and, and I'm sure you're conversant with that. What are What's one or two things of sort of studying those still existing sort of tribal societies when it comes to prayer and, and that kind of basic religiosity that, that you find most illuminating. I'm actually cautious about this use of an ethnographic analogy. I sometimes wonder if tribal cultures that are contemporaneous with us would, would be pleased to be compared to um, sure. Paleolithic. But I think we can get at some sort of primordial structures of religious behavior and thought by studying uh, tribal cultures and a lot of other cultures, all of which are complex. There is no simple culture that we can get access to. And they would include magic, magical practices, word magic, object magic, and sacrifice, which I think is a fundamental category of religious experience and which is, is never dropped by any of the major religions, it always just gets reinterpreted, maybe internalized, but but it seems so fundamental that, well, again, maybe this is just me as a religion nerd. I, you know, I see it every, once I start to think about it, I see it everywhere. Sacrifice meaning making offerings, not doesn't always just mean giving up something. Would it be yeah. accurate to say that in human history, there has never been any major religious movement that did not involve the impulse to sacrifice to a deity? Or to an ancestor mm -hmm. or to some other power, right. Uh, and, or even to a living power wielder. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the, seems like the fundamental transaction to give something, to make an offering as an act of establishing a relationship and maybe pacifying or in some way pleasing a, a power who has some kind of power over one. This might be a rabbit trail we don't want to go down for long, but uh, one of the sort of central questions of Christian theology in my adult life has been around sort of atonement and um, basically yeah. sort of vacillating between two options. One being God really requires sacrifice and Jesus is that sacrifice toward the other, which I think I lean more toward, which is it would be weird to say that God required sacrifice because God might create beings in all kinds of different sort of modalities. And maybe it's that human psychology is such that we think God requires sacrifice and God shows up and accepts sacrifice and then sacrifices on our behalf because that would be how we could understand love as human beings or as people in religious systems. And I don't know which of those is correct or neither of them. We're off book here, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about sort of applying that universal fact of sacrifice to some some theological speculation. Yeah, well, obviously, models of the atonement that involve God needing a victim yeah. are not, not attractive <laughs> models. And treatment of sacrifice in the Bible is very complicated because you have the Abraham story, putting an end to child sacrifice, which was probably practiced in the ancient Near East. And God yeah. is taking a stand of wanting the sacrificial disposition of obedience and faith and service on the part of, 
of his chosen Abraham, but not wanting the sacrifice of the beloved son to happen, this son who's a miracle son, you know. There's the prophets, you know, the literature where the prophets, have, you know, say that God says, I don't want your bloody sacrifices. I don't need, right. uh, or other times where God is pleased with the scent, you know, the the incense that's that's rising. So it's complicated, just, you know, our scriptural warrant for thinking about sacrifice is pretty complicated, but it, it never just goes away until we get the Lamb of God to be the Paschal sacrifice. Right. So apparently God wants us to think about things in those terms, but not in ways that would would be unworthy of the God of love. How do you put those things together? You kind of skated past it, but you did something interesting with the Abraham and Isaac story. You kind of completely sidelined Kierkegaard's famous thing about that, which is that God is requiring something absurd of Abraham and and faith is Mm -hmm. absurd. And that's kind of the beginning of existentialism. And you just said, (laughs) I mean, you said basically a lot of people were killing kids back then. And one way to read this story is Abraham thinks he's supposed to do that. And God puts an end to that practice by saying, actually, I'm going to give you something else instead. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Because I, I don't think people would forgive me for letting you off the hook on on, uh, on such know. a claim. I mean, or, you know, I don't think he should have broken off his engagement with Regina, which is <laughs> what his treatment of the Abraham story is supposed to be all about, right? Mm. It's really all just this cryptic um, retelling, reliving of this anguish story about how he felt he had to give up Regina because it was absurd. I mean, but he presents it as kind of this arbitrary act, arbitrary in the sense God lodged a veto against there. So I think Kierkegaard has an exaggerated sense of the arbitrariness of the divine command. And so um, I, I wouldn't use it to help me understand the Abraham story. I would only use it to help me understand Kierkegaard's unique and brilliant, you know, and totally amazing literary and psychological self. Yeah, but even so, I mean, we can psychoanalyze Kierkegaard and say, well, he was just like a frustrated lover, jilted lover, whatever, self-jilted. Or, and we can also self, you know, psychoanalyze Augustine and say, well, he was sexually repressed and that's what, oh, you no, know, no. but <laughs> like, <laughs> let's not go there. I mean, I don't want to do that. It's more like people have really struggled with, the Isaac story. And I yeah. don't think that most of them have thought that the simplest way out is to say, this is a cautionary tale ending child sacrifice. So that's just kind of an no, interesting take. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I don't, I don't remember what we said in the book, actually. It's been a while, long while. But I would say, um, I agree with Kierkegaard when he says, I cannot understand it. I can't understand that story. But it's not a story we can regret having in our scripture. So it is a scandal in a way, and and it's a mystery. And it's interesting. I mean, there's so many different interpretations of it. There's an interesting book about Abraham by John Levinson, a scholar, Jewish Jewish and biblical, in which he emphasizes how we're, in a sense, the the three so-called Abrahamic religions are are divided by a common Abraham, uh, that we have a common, we, that's our, you know, our common ancestor figure, but we, but each tradition interprets Abraham differently. Oh so, man, I have to read that. I have yeah, Creation and the Persistence of Evil on the shelf. I haven't oh. read it yet. I've, I've bought a couple of his books and they're just waiting 
but I definitely that sounds incredible. Also, he's a great book on the resurrection and the restoration of Israel. He's yep. really quite a brilliant fellow. We're going to start thinking about other religions here. And your book does not only focus on Christian prayer, it focuses on prayer worldwide. We've already sort of started on pre-Christian, pre-Jewish prayer, but you're also looking uh, at wider religious world. And I can imagine a certain kind of Christian wondering if it's even a good idea to consider prayer from other religious traditions, at least after we've got Judaism and Christianity as an option, to consider these other religions in any way similar, such that they would be side by side in the same book. Like they might uh, find themselves thinking, aren't Christians praying to the real God and everyone else is praying either to gods that don't exist or worse, uh, demonic forces or something. What would your response be to a worry like that? If there is a God, I think God would be able to receive messages, even if the address is garbled in some way. <laughs> God might have a little, you know, smile at how poorly the address was. I mean, even if it says to whom it may concern, there's actually a Vedic hymn in the Rig Veda to, to a God named Who. And it's, it's almost, I think it may be a joke. I mean, but it's its serious. But it starts with this idea, who made the earth? Yeah. So why not venerate this who? Um, so a sincere prayer to who, to whomever it was that made the earth, seems to me God would receive as such. This is actually a strategy that's used by different religions sometimes. In the Bhagavad Gita, which is this great sacred text of Hinduism, Krishna who is the supreme God in that tradition, says anyone who prays to any God and offers incense or anything like that, I accept as a prayer to me. So it's a great way, to, and in some ways, to co-opt the other religions and say, "Here's this is the true God saying, all you other people you know, are mixed up about who you're praying to, but at least you're praying, and I will, in my great mercy and wisdom, accept that as a prayer to me. So, but when you say this issue about treating these different prayer traditions, having them side by side, I think they belong side by side in a book about prayer, but I don't think they belong side by side in a prayer book. A prayer book is a book that uh, comes from a particular religion, and religions aren't just customs. There's this element of revelation. So if I learn about God, as is most likely the case, if I've learned about God from a particular revelation, scripture, tradition, I think it would be very foolish of me and also ungrateful not to respond to God as revealed in that particular tradition, which has a salvation aspect to it, you know, that's been offered to me, and not to follow the sort of well-worn path of that tradition in which I have met God, as opposed to some sort of abstract idea that there are, you know, all forms of religion out there. That seems to me to be very foolish, even if I do agree with what I said a minute ago, that God would accept those prayers, it would not be appropriate for me to pray to Krishna. Though when I have friends who are Vaishnava Hindus, and they pray to Krishna, I believe they are praying to God. And I admire them, and I can learn from them about their experience and about their disciplines and their wisdom and all of that. I can learn from it. But I can't pray to Krishna. So that's why I say in a prayer book, they don't belong side by side. Yeah, even just this morning in that kind of 
uh, half-assed prayer experience I mentioned earlier. Uh, towards, I was mostly just kind of trying to be silent, and it wasn't working very well. I was kind of restful. Towards the very end, as my wife was leaving the house on an errand, I just found myself spontaneously, you know, Lord have mercy on her, and just starting a little <laughs> simple little liturgy, and just immediately feeling like the the tenor of my prayer changed when I did that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could try and explain that away as habit and its neural pathways and whatever. But I don't really want to do that. I don't want to explain it away that way. I'd rather focus on the phenomenon of it, which was mm-hmm. it deepened my prayer and it connected me back to the life of faith that I've had for 35 years. And this is something that I'm finding so interesting that you kind of bring up as uh, there, there is a way we, especially I think my, my generation and the one just below me, just younger than me, we are uniquely presented with this issue because of having grown up in the information age mm-hmm. of, of the reality of religious pluralism in the world uh, mm-hmm. in a way that really our parents' generation, maybe your generation, uh, gatekeepers were pretty good at kind of keeping it out. And also, unless you're an academic or a scholar – you're really just not learning much about Hindus or about mm-hmm. what Taoists believe or how their lives look or anything. You might have National Geographic or something lying around. But, you know, but now it's like totally unavoidable for curious younger people with the, with Wikipedia at our fingertips. And there's still this tension, though, of, OK, I can acknowledge that that exists. But does that mean I need to become Baha'i? Do I basically need to find some syncretism of all world religions or would it be better for me to stay within my own tradition? And, you know, I don't have an answer to that question, but I lean toward stay. I mean, like, is there not enough in your tradition for for you to pursue God? And I don't know if you mm-hmm. want to just if you have anything else to say about that, that tension. Well, one way to look at it is that each religion is like a complete ecosystem. So, for instance, if you're attracted to certain kinds of religious experience, meditative, contemplative, or looking for certain opportunities for service to your fellow humans. All the major religions are fully realized ecosystems in which all of these possibilities exist. So it would be silly to to jump over to another one because you didn't, in Sunday school when you were a teenager, didn't find exactly what you wanted in your religion. And that's kind of a consumerist attitude, which is a problem anyway for faith. But I think every religion is particular, and this is the principle of revelation, that you could have a sort of bland genetic generic godism, theism. That's not a religion. Even the the syncretistic faiths or the ones that are sort of hybrid like Baha'i, they're particular too. So if you really want to get rid of all the differences among the religions and sort of meld them all together, you have to sort of rise up to a level of abstraction, at which point you've lost the religion. I mean, the word God, for instance, isn't all that helpful. It's when you say, Lord, that you've entered into a relationship with the with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So sometimes it's deceptive that we can talk about God or the divine in a sort of generic way and uh, think that we've overcome differences. But in fact, all we've done is is taken ourselves out of a living religious context. So, and there's truth. There's also a question of truth. Yeah. Because I do believe in conversion. I don't think that this looking at, at religion as a cultural system is not is not fully adequate. 
it's not just a set of traditions and customs passed on to you that you might as well continue because they're beautiful to have traditions and customs. There are also truth claims made by the different religions. And when you, you know, use your God-given reason and your intuitions and your discernment to find truth in a particular tradition, if that's Zoroastrianism, you should convert to Zoroastrianism. But if not, if it just happens that the one you were born into is the one that that seems true, then I would stick to it. So you're emphasizing the truth claims sort of over and against a kind of a loosey-goosey, super left religiosity. But Mm -hmm. on the other side, most of where myself and my listeners have come from is is the opposite end of that spectrum, which is like, yeah, exactly, Carol. It's truth. And Christianity is true. So why the hell would we spend a bunch of time learning about these other ones that aren't true? How do you respond to, to that sort of opposite end argument? Somewhat the way the early Christian apologists talked about the truth of pagan philosophers the seeds of the Logos. Sometimes I think Coleridge talks about this, that the truth can become, we can become dehabituated. Is that the word? It becomes too familiar in the form that we are are used to and loses its power over us. And uh, so that if we discover it again in an, in an unfamiliar tradition, it reawakens our sensitivity to it in our own. If a Christian believes that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God with an inborn drive and tendency to want to know God, then you would have to assume that there are possibilities for fulfillment of that orientation towards God in other other cultures and other religions. And just for the sake of admiring the holiness of people in those other religions— or the, or the wisdom that they've found, that would be a good reason to study them. I agree. So, Carol, in the book, you and your husband come come up with four archetypal figures of prayer, the refugee, mm-hmm. the devotee, the ecstatic, and the contemplative. I'd love to go spend a little time on this and go through each of those four archetypes and um, yeah. and talk through one Christian example and one non-Christian example about each of those. So, Let's start, and then also have you define what you mean. So let's start with the first one, the refugee. What what kind of prayer figure is this? Okay, we wanted to get away from some of the older typologies of prayer, so we came up with a rather um, flexible, not okay. systematic way of grouping different, almost like allegorical type figures um, representing different kinds of prayer. So the refugee, we chose the word actually because uh, you encounter it in in Hinduism and in Buddhism, the idea of taking refuge in a personal deity. If you want to become a Buddhist, basically all you need to do is recite this formula called the triple refuge, where you say, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma, that is the authoritative teaching of the Buddha. I take refuge in the Sangha, which is the uh, community, originally monastic community of the Buddha. So that idea of taking refuge uh, struck us as, as fundamental, and we used it to talk about primarily ordinary petitionary prayer, 
So there, our, our first way of thinking of, of it, and the reason we use that, that term, was coming out of the Hindu bhakti tradition. You know, in Hinduism, there's some philosophical traditions that are very monistic, that is, all is one, and the infinite spirit pervades all, and your soul is simply just a part of this great oceanic, infinite, absolute. In a situation like that, there's not a lot of room for, for petitionary prayer, because... Right. The God is totally within. But in the devotional tradition called bhakti, there is a distinction made between the, the person who prays and the divine being. And that is the context in which you would take refuge in a deity. I want to talk a little bit about petitionary prayer, as I mentioned earlier. And this, this seems like maybe the time to do it, and we'll, we'll come back to the other <laughs> archetypes. My wife and I are going through uh, a infertility process now that's many mm-hmm. years long. Mm-hmm. And I found myself the other morning just praying that the most recent thing we tried would work. Yeah. And I felt like of two minds about it, because on the one hand, I'm aware of the kind of um, philosophical problems. You know, if you're praying for healing or if you're praying for, you know, uh, an embryo to be healthy or any pick your thing that you're praying for. What is there some kind of meter, you know, like. How could you be affecting the outcome of this? You know, um, many people, myself included, have have real problems with sort of God suspending the, the laws of the universe as God ordained them sort of haphazardly. If God does that, then God needed to be doing that a bunch of times where it appears that God wasn't doing that. All these things. But then I just did it, you know, like <laughs> when I woke up that morning, I just did. And I felt... Yeah okay doing that and i it's gotten me thinking just in the last week even about like okay what's there's something important about that there's something so human about that and even if it's wrong or it doesn't you know like whatever its effectiveness there's a way that people can guilt other people They, they can use this as a weapon and they can say well you didn't have enough faith or if you're really if you're not praying for that then you're really doing poorly i don't mean anything like that i just mean this spontaneous welling up. And my wife said the same thing. She said, I was praying for this and I caught myself praying for this kind of thing. And I just wonder what you think about, you seem like a safe person to ask that because you have this, this sort of warm curiosity and appreciation for sort of what is human about prayer. And so I just wanted to, I wanted to share that and then sort of see what you had to say. Yeah, one of the reasons that we set aside some of the traditional schemes about different types of prayer is that we didn't like the hierarchy that's sometimes set up, which makes sort of uh, contemplative prayer. It's the top, uh, right. The top, and petitionary prayer is kind of low and crude because, you know, as I said, I think in some ways petitionary prayer is the paradigm prayer. There are these philosophical problems, like, you know, you you don't want to say that God is mutable, Changeable. And this again, changeable. Well, yeah. some people do, and I, I would consider myself an open and relational you're an open, theist. You're an so open theist. I, yeah, so okay. I, I'm okay well, with God you're being. All set. <laughs> well, I still have my own problems of like connected to well being. But, but yeah, in theory, I don't have a problem with God being okay. changed. And I, I think God is changed at least at minimum insofar as God participates in my prayer. God is changed by the fact that I prayed as opposed to not praying. And, and maybe God mm-hmm. is further changeable than that, I'm not sure. 
or God wishes you to participate in the complex set of causes that are going to lead right. to that result that he exactly. already had in mind. Yes. He wants you to be part of that causality, which is a great act of of mercy and consideration on, on God's part, not to prize his own sovereignty and immutability so far right. above the dignity of the human person. So I wouldn't call myself an open theist, but I'm very attracted to that idea. Yeah. All right, so God already knows what we need. And there's already a problem, actually, in why some people have good things that other people don't have, regardless of prayer. Why do the rich get richer and all of that? So that's a fundamental problem. And no analysis of prayer is going to solve that problem. I think it's, it's not solvable in, in a sort of general way. But this is, again, where I think that there are there are religion-specific kind of solutions to certain problems that you don't get if you just sort of generally thinking about what would be appropriate for a God to do. Because what we know about what God does is it sometimes kind of break the rules of what's appropriate for a God to do by sending his son hmm. to experience crucifixion, among other things, and to experience the frustration, I suppose— of a failed prayer, the most spectacularly failed prayer, the prayer, prayer of Christ at Gethsemane. Right. Um, so the standard answer to these questions, I think, about petitionary prayer is that God wants us to ask because it's good for us to ask, not because God needs to be informed about what we need, but for the sake of that relationship that happens when you ask. Just like if you think about the analogy of the infant, even the preverbal infant, who in some ways is asking by crying for what is needed. Right. Mom knows what the infant needs, but when the infant asks and then receives what the infant needs, a bond is created, the most essential bond. And so the good things come from this asking beyond just the specific good thing that was requested. So apparently, I mean, I think the tradition is saying God, God wants that to happen. I think there must be some providential reason why we can't answer this question completely to our satisfaction. There really we is a difference sure. between being willing to be vulnerable before God with a petition and on the other end saying, I, you know, the way I think of it is I'm going to protect my expectations. I'm going to adjust my expectations based on how I think the world is. And so I'm not going to pray petition. I'm not going to do any petitionary prayer. And it's complicated. People come down on, on different sides of this. They've had different life experiences. They've had different faith community experiences with prayer. And there's all kinds of spiritual abuse that goes on around this topic, especially in some of the more prosperity gospel tinged environments yeah. where it really becomes a bludgeon. But I, I do just notice in my own experience, there is a difference between saying, well, I know that this doesn't work. And so I won't do this. And like, do I really? And, and am I going to put how much confidence am I going to put in my own ability to know what kind of prayer works, as opposed to simply going, God, please let this work. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I know it might not. And, and, but like, in the moment, Am I being more true to the relationality between myself and my creator by asking? It, it does feel like that's more accurate. Like mm -hmm. God is actually that much bigger than me. And and like how often do I express that sort of creatureliness? And there yeah. did there seems so we, we kind of we kind of balk at people praying in rough situations and we go, Oh, it's the 
as Mark said, it's their crutch. And now they're on their crutch because they're, yeah. they're not keeping things going the way they want. But like we are destined to dust, we shall return. Like at what point are we ever not on crutches? It's just yeah. not the religious crutch. We're on our success crutch, our nice car crutch, our square footage, our attractive spouse, our successful kids mm-hmm. crutch. I mean, these are all f- crutches. Mm-hmm. It's just one of them is religious. Yeah. I think when you use the word creature to speak of human beings, you really that that captures it all. That sense of of creaturehood. Um, if you just if you just described us as souls, then you might say the purpose of prayer is to commune with the higher soul, the soul of the divinity. But if you're a creature, then it doesn't just mean that you were made at some point in the past. It means that right now you are dependent on the creator making you right now and giving you the power to make that petitionary prayer in this unequal relationship. So that's, it seems to me, the most fundamental thing for uh, a creature to do. So the most recent patron-only exclusive episode is a conversation with my friend Jack Holloway. He's a BART scholar talking about how liberal Christians might read the text while still maintaining a very high view of Scripture. After all, for those of you who know a little bit about Karl Barth, that's basically what he was known for. And here is a little clip of that conversation to see if you might be interested. He he says, like, I mean, the ki- the kingdom of God is coming soon. We probably don't need the distractions of, like, marriage. But, I mean, I guess if not being married is distracting you, then get married. And... So I it's you could almost imagine that like he had the first thought but then kept finding in the the actual existence of human beings that that was a hard thing to to sort of demand from people and so responding to life and being like oh okay well I mean if if you can't handle it get married and I think honestly and this is this is obviously going to be a controversial thing to say if you're a conservative. I think if if Paul was alive today and was responding to and and had people coming to his church and who were queer and um you know had were struggling with that or whatever, uh, I think he would eventually go, okay, you know what? I mean, fine. <laughs> like this is not the gospel does not hinge on. Hmm what your gender identity is, I don't think. I don't think the gospel hinges on what relationship you're in. And I think that's the point he's saying when he says, like, yeah, don't get married, but at the end of the day, like, the gospel does not hinge on whether or not you get married. As you probably know, patrons of this show get at least two of these exclusive patron-only episodes every month plus access to the phenomenal patron-only Facebook group. It is not phenomenal because of what I put in. It is phenomenal because of what you guys put in. In fact, Andrew's question about mental tricks for better empathizing with people that I will be answering at the end of the episode came from a thread in that Facebook group. It all starts at five bucks a month. You can give more if you'd like to. But if finances are really tight in this season of life, email me because there are some scholarships available. And also, if your spouse is in, is a patron and is in the group, feel free to add yourself as well to that group. 
patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Of course, there are links to this in the show notes. Back to my chat with Carol Zaleski on what counts as prayer. Well, let's return to your four archetypes. So we, we did the refugee, which is which is basically petitionary prayer, and you grabbed it out of the Hindu tradition, but of course we have infinite examples within our own Christian tradition for those of us raised Christian. Mm-hmm. Next is the the devotee. What yeah. what is that style of prayer? So the devotee is is a person who is engaged in a devotional religious tradition and makes use of of regular kinds of prayer that often punctuate the day. Within the Christian tradition, there's this idea that we should pray without ceasing. What does that mean? How do you pray without ceasing? That obviously refers to something beyond petitionary prayer. It's not saying at every moment you should be asking for something, but you should be in some kind of relationship of prayer at all times. So it's perhaps not humanly possible unless you're practicing the Jesus prayer and it descends into your heart and it becomes a sort of constant thing. In our discussion of the devotee, we talked about the set hours of prayer in Judaism that actually correspond to the time when you would go to the temple to perform sacrifice when the temple was standing. We talk about the liturgy of the hours, also called the divine office in Christianity, and Salat, the Islamic practice of prayer five times a day, and other things like that, this sort of regular, repetitive, cyclical prayer, which is a way for human beings who are uh, frail creatures to attempt to pray without ceasing, offering prayer and attention to God at those times. In my own reading of uh, mostly Christian contemplatives within Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism, uh, this comes up a lot, this idea of setting times throughout the day um, as opposed to simply praying in the morning or praying as you go to bed. What is that playing on psychologically or or evolutionarily or just why do people find that so helpful in terms of, I don't know, it's, it's, for, it's for heavy lifters more. It's like if you really want to change the way you see the world, these guys will say, pray throughout the day. What do, what do you think is going on there? Well, I think that our experience can feel like a kind of chaos. So this brings cosmos into chaos. It's almost like, yeah, kind of recapitulating the account of creation in in Genesis that, you know, God making there be uh, times and space divided and, and all of that. So this is how we can respond to it, which is also expressed in the idea of the Sabbath. Because otherwise, I mean, just in terms of practicalities, if we don't have some kind of regular order to the times of our day, we just fall into, at least I would, just become a sort of puddle of sludge of some kind, you know. That is how I felt this morning. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. Puddle of sludge. Uh, And for the the hour or so I was awake before... I had my half-assed prayer attempt. I just was like, I was just flitting between phone apps and whatever happened to come into my mind. And, you know, it's not a satisfying way to live. Do you Mm -hmm. mind uh, me asking your personal, what you aim for in terms of daily prayer? It sounded like you, you attempt this yourself. I do, but I often fail and, and become totally lost from it and stop and 
then I try to start up again. Yeah. I try to follow the, the liturgy of the hours because I'm a, an oblate of Benedictine monastery. My husband and I are both oblates of a twin community, uh, monks and nuns. So I'm an oblate with the nuns and he's with the monks and they share a liturgy. It's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. So it's like a bond of friendship, and it's their expression of their hospitality, and then it, they become a sort of family to us. So so the idea is that as much as possible, you participate in the liturgical life of the community, in the prayer life of the community, but understanding that working people you know, can't go seven times a day to, to pray. Yeah, so. I've, I've looked into that, and, and it's kind of one of my long-term goals is to eventually become an oblate for a monastery, either up here in Seattle or if it mm-hmm. makes sense with the um, New Camaldoli in, in Big Sur, California, which is That'd be lovely. <laughs> just the most beautiful place I've ever been, maybe. It is beautiful, yeah. Second to last, the ecstatic. This is our third archetypal yeah. figure of prayer. Right. So it, in some ways, it's the opposite of this idea of regular canonical prayer. I mean, we've been talking about prayers that, that can be very routine, and I think that's just fine. I also, I don't think prayer depends on having certain emotional states to go with it. But there is a type of prayer which is almost like possession, possession by the Spirit or right. by the spirits that's found all over the world and in all different kinds of cultures. Where you, I mean, Ecstasy actually literally means standing outside yourself, where you're taken outside yourself, but you might say in a sense that the Spirit, or the divine invades you so that not I, but Christ lives in me is mm. one way to say it. But it, you know, sometimes with, with uh, rather extreme manifestations, physical, physiological, psychological. And you're talking about this on a personal level more so than, cause I was thinking on a corporate level, you might think of like the Azusa street revival yeah. that started Pentecostalism, but that's right. happening to like hundreds of people at once. Right. We, we're uncomfortable with stuff like that. People like myself, I, I'm not a Presbyterian, but I attended a Presbyterian church for 10 years, and culturally I felt very comfortable there, kind of tight-lipped, no arms waving, um, (laughs) cerebral. And I hear about stuff like the spirit fell and 250 people went crazy and like had this beautiful thing and there was racial reconciliation. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know where to put it. But but in your book, you don't get to shy away because you got to write a typology for all prayer. Do, do you share that kind of constitutional worry about that kind of thing, or are you more open to it in general? And then as you looked into it and wrote about it, kind of what happened? Well, I've never experienced it. Okay. So I'm not totally uncomfortable about it, but it would be a, quite a learning experience for me to go to a, a, a Pentecostal, a charismatic service. You can interpret these things in terms of psychological and physiological things going on, but you could do that with the more decorous kinds of prayer too. And where does that get you? All it does is tell you that we have a built-in propensity for these kinds of prayer, and maybe that's the kind of creatures we are, and and right. maybe that propensity should be allowed to express itself, assuming the fruits are good, which is how you know Jonathan Edwards and, and others would have us evaluate these spirit-filled states. So, you know, it, it has different valence in different cultures, too. In the, bo- in the book, we talked about Ramakrishna as an ecstatic. Yeah, I wanted to make sure we that, talked about him. That part of the book yeah. just is probably the number one piece that has stuck with me over the last couple of years is just reading about this guy who these accounts of him are just 
almost unbelievable, but there's so many of them coming from yeah. different, like you, you have to take it seriously, but part of me resisted taking this guy's story seriously. Can, can you give us a little bit of that, just the basics of the story? Well, he was a 19th century Bengali mystic in a tradition that had a kind of vocabulary for an understanding of being possessed by, it's a sort of an extreme form of that bhakti devotional tradition that I was talking about. So with an idea, great respect for people who become actually dysfunctional because they're so possessed by God. God-intoxicated holy men and holy women are greatly respected to this day in Hindu culture. So he was one such and perhaps the most highly developed ecstatics in, in history, perhaps, I don't know. So he had a special personal relationship with the goddess Kali and saw her as the sort of mother goddess of all creation. He sometimes dressed as a woman. He took on other religious practices, including the sort of somewhat dicey tantric practices of his own tradition, but also Christianity, Islam. He had ecstatic experiences within each of these traditions. And he would go into sort of trance states in which Jesus would merge with his body or Kali would merge with his body. And he had many, many followers who just to touch the hem of his garment was, you know, was to receive some of that grace. Some of the stuff that, I mean, so the way you just told it, it's easy for someone to go, oh, that dude's crazy. I mean, like that's, I don't have to take anything from that. He's confused. But the accounts of all these different people who encountered him is just like, he just radiated love and compassion mm-hmm. and kindness. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like, are those only from followers of his or are these, are there additional sources of people that really ought to have been quite skeptical or what do we know about how people perceived him? His chief follower, Swami Vivekananda, was was highly educated and very kind of an enlightenment thinker, actually, who wanted to uh, transcend what seemed to him to be this, the crude and superstitious aspects of religion. So it's very inter- it an interesting combination so that he could appeal to someone who had that intellectual approach and who was deeply immersed in this sort of abstract philosophical monism, almost like monotheism of the Hindu tradition. Yeah, so it was his personal charisma, radiating love that seemed to draw people of all kinds. Yeah. And at the same time, you could say, you know, maybe maybe he was suffering from epilepsy. Some of his trance states had features of them that are found in various kinds of like temporal lobe epilepsy. And that's true of a lot of these mystics that have visionary experiences. What do you, I mean, so then there's, so Ocho or uh, what are the, the the guys that were in Oregon that they made Wild Wild Country about Osho? That kind of oh, cult. I mean, it was like really educated people that were drawn to that cult, but they were, mm-hmm. you know, they have been proven to have engaged in tons of awful activity. And yeah. And then you've got possible episodes. Like, how do you <laughs> one of the things that I loved about reading your book was like it it took this stuff seriously. It didn't explain it away. But how do we how do we responsibly think about these kind of right. things when there's when it's hard to get the evidence and and do we are we willing to even connect that to how we reconstruct Jesus of Nazareth and you know all this stuff mm-hmm. Yeah well I think when you're dealing with a group in Oregon where you don't have a cultural support and you don't have the sort of checks and balances that a culture that has long experience with ecstatic forms of religious practice then then it's very dangerous 
something very different is going on there. With Ramakrishna, what you have as his legacy is these Ramakrishna missions that are tremendous, you know, humanitarian institutions, rather than uh, cults of people who are subject to his charisma in a way that's destructive of their personality and their morals and all of that. Obviously, there can be moral problems in any, in any religious institution, but I think the diff- there's a, that huge difference between what we think of as, as these sort of cults that since the 60s in, in America took people to sort of rupture from their tradition and put them at the mercy of charismatic religious figures without a, without a way of, un, of understanding them that was um, indigenous to that culture. Your last archetype, not the best, not the top, but the <laughs> last one is the contemplative. What do you mean by the yeah. contemplative? Well, generally, uh, contempt, we think of contemplation as often kind of gazing upon the divine, not asking for something, just often silent, wordless, being in the presence of the divine. And for some people, that would be a higher form of prayer. I just don't want to, you know, make that a blanket evaluation that this is the highest form of prayer. It would depend on the person. It's something like what people sometimes think of when they think of meditation now. Mm-hmm. The, the, the words have kind of flipped their meaning a little bit. The monasteries where my husband and I are, are oblates are, are called contemplative Benedictine monasteries, but they practice the sort of regular canonical hours. But the, the idea is that they're not active in the sense that they don't run schools, they don't have hospitals and so on. So their entire life is devoted to the whole the whole spectrum of forms of prayer, which include praise, thanksgiving, adoration, and so on. So one kind of contemplative act that you find in their tradition also is simply sitting in front of the reserved Eucharist sacrament and just looking at it and in a kind of state of awe and gratitude for it with, with the belief that Christ is really present in that sacrament. So that's a, that's a sort of Catholic-specific belief. Yeah. Um, that's a contemplative act, a Zen garden as a contemplative environment, or Zen tea ceremony, or Zen poetry often has this quality of of bringing you into a kind of stillness in the face of ultimate reality, of stilling the monkey mind and uh, taming it without thinking for the moment about what you need or what someone else needs. I want to switch to sort of the opponents of prayer, public type thinkers. Who are some of these opponents of taking prayer seriously? What do they tend to say? What do you think that they are missing about prayer? Well, there's opponents of God, of belief in God and of religion. So the the, the famous new atheists. There's the older, not so much opponents, but people who thought that prayer would, would soon die out as a practice because of the scheme that the early British anthropologists were famous for, that you had a, an era of magic, which would be replaced by religion, attempting to appease the gods, and finally, ultimately give way to science. And that's where we are now. And I suppose the, the form of that, that that's with us now would include some people that are sympathetic to prayer, but that people who think you can give a naturalistic explanation for prayer 
as a some sort of evolutionary a, a adaptive strategy, as a crutch, as you were saying, a compensatory strategy that presumably once you know that that's what's going on, you, you can dispense with it and be more rational and deliberative in what sort of crutches you, you choose. But there are people who, who do a naturalistic study, like from the standpoint of cognitive science of what's going on in prayer, but don't necessarily use that to debunk it. I mean, it actually seems to me that if there is a God who has created us with a view towards us coming to know God and desiring to know God, and as that our, as our final fulfillment, it wouldn't be surprising that we would have built into our nature these sort of cognitive structures that lead us to um, have prayer states of consciousness. Anyway, so there are people that, that use naturalistic accounts to debunk prayer. The other thing is that there's some sophisticated, in, in scare quotes, sophisticated theologians who are embarrassed by prayer because it seems like magic, too much like magic, or because, you know, they're embarrassed by particular forms of prayer, like uh, speaking in tongues. Then there are people that, for political reasons, are against prayer being in the public square. That's a whole other dimension. Right. That somehow prayer would be a kind of coercive th thought crime, you know, if you go around praying for people that don't want to be prayed for, that public prayer or when athletes pray or any of that has political ramifications that are unwelcome to certain dogmatic secularists, as if that were a political thing. Yeah, I think. Well, that's, a, that's a pretty nice that's a pretty nice list uh one thing i wanted to just tuck in there about you know if god created us for communication for fellowship then we would expect to have these kind of cognitive capacities there's kind of a more science version of that about sort of cosmological history that says it's even just sort of easier maybe more palatable even than what than what you said which is that like if the point we've gotten to in the universal story is that through human beings, the universe has become conscious of itself, that mm -hmm. that might represent like a really important chapter in cosmological history. The, the fact that for the first time, the universe can contemplate itself. We don't have to say that that is purely tangential or just some evolutionary spandrel, some unintended consequence of genes trying to replicate, but that maybe, and then especially when you throw in mind in terms of quantum mechanics, like quantum mechanic equations don't even work unless you posit an observer that maybe there's something going on where mind is in some sense as important or as ontologically prior or something to matter. That's what mm -hmm. Keith Ward wants to say, yeah. British philosopher. Yeah. And so there's that too. That's another way of coming at it that isn't quite the same as saying, well, God wants us to be able to communicate, although I, I do believe that. But there's another, you know, even kind of a more sort of scholarly, more more sciencey way of talking about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, my only problem with the sciencey ways of of justifying things is that science keeps changing. So I wouldn't want to put too much weight on it, but it is fun to think about those things. I think it is interesting too that that what we were talking about earlier, the the so-called problem of petitionary prayer, is really related to a much larger problem of the problem of evil. Yep. And yeah. here the question of the value or efficacy of prayer is related to this much larger question you just raised of the mind and cosmos. <laughs> Uh, and what that's about. And that's because prayer is so fundamental to 
to our mental life and to our orientation towards the universe. So what do you think these opponents, you know, they have different arguments, but broadly speaking, what do you think they're missing? Like I've long wanted to watch a debate between Sam Harris and Karen Armstrong (laughs) because she knows so much about religion. And -hmm. as far as I can tell, he knows more or less only what religious fundamentalists say about religion. And I would just be so interesting to see them clash on that. I don't think that's ever going to happen because I don't think he would ever agree to that. But Mm -hmm. like, what do you, as someone who spent, you know, years working on a book about prayer and studying it and teaching about it, what do you think that those critiques are missing? Well, from a purely humanistic, this worldly standpoint, they're missing the fact that every great culture that we know in some ways has been a product of prayer, a reflection of prayer, the original works of art, of drama, even of of science and effort to understand the world. I think that prayer creates culture. So uh, once you start to get into that debunking mode, you're really cutting yourself off from the sources of culture and from the past in favor of a future-facing outlook, which is very thin, really, kind of mechanistic and thin. And you know, disregarding a huge force which has brought a sense of hope and harmony and sanity, reverence for life and beauty into the world. It seems pretty short-sighted. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. I have a question from a, a patron and a listener of the show. What do we lose at an individual level in your mind if, if we don't pray? An inner compass, maybe. A connection to other people. Like you're saying, if you, you know, a prayer seems to be sterile until you pray for somebody else. So we talked about petitionary prayer, but there's also intercession, which is a special kind of petitionary prayer, which involves a, a reciprocity, mutuality with other people and connects us to other people. And, and it isn't just that it's, it's, not, it's not, I'm not just saying that in addition to being connected to God, you can be connected to some other people around you. I'm saying that you're connected to those other people in God That's what prayer does, and nothing else does that. I think that also sometimes people don't feel what they think they should feel. Actually, C.S. Lewis talks about this when he went through a religious phase before he became an atheist as a young man, where he was trying to summon up all the sort of feelings he thought he should have, and that actually, he just sort of burnt out with that. But what prayer does is create an aptitude for a disposition of gratefulness, for joy, for resilience or consolation. So uh, not, not exercising that muscle, you know, is, is a way of having these sources of not just comfort, but also energizing power kind of dimmed down. I wanted to mention just a friend of mine who's a monk up in Scotland. I just noticed this on the BBC a couple days ago. They did a series on freedom. What does freedom mean to you? And his was prayer is the greatest freedom of all. You might want to look at it. Father Giles. Is oh, nice. Plus, That's plus cool. I can send you a link. Yeah, send me a link. I'll put it in the show notes. And his idea of prayer is is that it's listening. It isn't just speaking or silently addressing God, but it's listening to God. So that's a pretty important thing that we didn't get to mention. Well, I got this other question from a patron that I want to kind of ask and then rephrase. So the original question was, what kind of evidence do people who pray tend to look for in terms of being confident 
that it's actually God or the divine on the other end and not just some elaborate self-talk. And I wanted to also just, I wanted to tweak that a little bit. And maybe is evidence the wrong way to look at this from our perspective? You know, there is, Mm -hmm. there's sort of the empirical question, what do people look for as evidence? Do they find it or not? But is there another way that we might think about this that is is not so evidentiary? Uh, Well, I think the things people look for if they're really thinking in an evidentiary way would be things like well-attested miracles. But I wonder if, if we could look at failed prayer as another kind of evidence, given the, the model that Jesus huh. sets for us at Gethsemane. Um, well, you know, there's Kierkegaard says that prayer doesn't change God, it changes the, the person who prays. So that would be a way of, of turning aside from an evidentiary approach. But then there are these, these funny studies of prayer, intercessory prayer, the people in hospitals and studies to see who benefits or to what extent do they benefit from prayer. We had a funny experience when I was, when we were doing this book our, and our son who's just graduated with a PhD in religion actually, but he was just a kid then, but this probably shows where he was headed. We told him about these prayer studies and he said, so you mean there's, there's a group of people who are in the hospital and they're suffering and nobody's praying for them. He said, I'm going to ruin that study and I'm going to pray for those people in that group. <laughs> so, so all of those studies were falsified that for that year because he was <laughs> praying for the people that weren't supposed to be prayed for according to those studies. Yeah, so I think those studies are nonsense. <laughs> so miracles are another thing where you use a kind of public process for, you know, at least within Catholicism, for adjudicating, eliminating most of the claims. But they claim to be able to say, okay, this one looks like the real thing. Yeah, I maybe if I was Catholic, I could get behind that. I don't know. I don't know if it matters to me either way. But one thing I loved about your book is that you guys are very, you're very careful to not explain stuff away. I mean, in, in one sense, the posture of the book is we're going to take everything at face value by by default. And we're going to see what the fruit of that is. And I really loved that. I thought that was a, the right decision just from an authorial perspective, but I also found it interesting spiritually to just take these stories from these different traditions that I'm not familiar with at face value. That I mentioned Sri Ramakrishna jumping out to me so much of just, oh, maybe God did do something really crazy with this guy in mm-hmm. this other tradition. And like, what would it mean if he, if God did do that? You know, yeah. I don't know. Do you, do you like? Could you talk a little bit about the decision to take that attitude? Yeah, well, I think if you're studying religion, you need certain data, and you can't have access to that data unless, at least, as the first thing you do, is try to look through the eyes of the people you're studying. It isn't just a matter of us studying them like they were some sort of specimen that we're observing. It's rather what does the world look like through their eyes? Until I know that, I don't think I'm in a position to bring any kind of interpretive tools to bear from any toolkit, anthropological, psychological, neurological. First, I need the data, which is the data of their actual experience, which is not always that easy to get to, but a certain amount of initial empathy, it seems to me, is an absolute requirement for for objective study. Let's switch to praying in tongues or glossolalia. Is that, am Mm -hmm. I saying that right? We're aware of it in Christianity, Pentecostals and the like, Mm -hmm. but is that only found in Christianity or is it in other traditions as well? 
Well, there's ecstatic speech. I don't want to use a word that sounds dismissive, but sort of babbling kind of speech. Yeah. Where sometimes it's claimed to be simply divine speech, or sometimes it's claimed to be, you know, other languages that the person who's who's speaking wouldn't have any natural way of knowing. So yeah, that does exist in other traditions. And sometimes it's related to practices that induce ecstasy. So for instance, in a Sufi Islamic mystical context, just repeating the name of God, but just repeating the pronoun, who, who, and then it gets involved in your breath can in, induce a state of ecstasy of, of openness to the divine presence, which presumably is, was always there, didn't leave, but to let down your psychic defenses in order for, to be aware of that presence, to experience that presence. Sometimes this this unhinging of ourselves from ordinary use of language, rather than through silence, but this ecstatic speech seems to to help people. One way of, of interpreting glossolalia in the Christian tradition is in terms of the missionary objective, to be able to speak the languages so that you can go to the ends of the earth and bring the gospel. There's also a kind of mythic dimension to it of reversing the curse of Babel, you know, that you can cut across all the differences that way. And as you said, the Azusa Street revival had this wonderful inclusiveness in terms of different races and ethnicities coming together. So it sort of melts down all those barriers, just as it melts down the sort of psychic defenses that keep God out. It melts down the barriers that keep other other humans out. That's one thing. You know, there's a really wonderful essay that people rarely read. It was actually a sermon for Pentecost that C.S. Lewis did called Transposition. Have you ever run across that? No, but I'm going to find it and I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's so great. I mean, it's not all about prayer, but it's about everything. If you want to get Lewis's fundamental gestalt, it's all in there. But it starts with a discussion of glossolalia. Because it's Pentecost, he's preaching on Pentecost. What he does is then moves from that to consider this problem, which I think we were just in a way alluding to, that so much of our of our spiritual experience seems like it could be explained naturalistically. So much of it just seems to involve things that are going on in our wiring, in our body, in our senses, and so on. And so he, he really addresses that head on in a, in a really beautiful way and actually makes it a strength rather than a weakness of prayer and of religion and of symbolic writing, and of sacrament, all of that. How does he make that argument? How does he make it a strength rather than a weakness? Because it's so hard to get out. Like this whole time in the conversation, I feel like there's a part of me that's really drawn to the way that you see this stuff. And then there's a part of me that I cannot turn off that is skeptical uh, or Mm -hmm. or trying to look for biological explanations or or whatever, maybe so I don't get burned, you know, maybe to manage my expectations. I don't know. So yeah, yeah. what what is that? How does he try and turn that into a strength? I have that skepticism too, I think. I, I, you know, I, I suspend it very often, but actually, I mean, I, I did, uh, before this book, I, I wrote a couple books on near-death experience, which was very funny how people reacted to it. People that were convinced that near-death experience was proof of, of an afterlife read my book as as defending that position. But there were some atheists and humanists 
who I was pleased to say liked the book because they thought it was skeptical. I was very influenced by William James at that time, who was very much of a biological thinker, a Darwinian and all of that. But he always would, um, the bottom line was always that the individual's right to believe in and trust his or her own experience, and also the possibility that God might reach us through our psyches and through our biology, rather than sailing above it and sort of descending to some level of our consciousness, which is purely spiritual. So here's how Lewis does it, which is in some ways more interesting than even than William James. 17th century figure Samuel Pepys, who wrote this famous diaries full of kind of scandalous stuff, and it's really kind of exciting and funny. There's a point in the diary where, where Pepys talks about two times when he felt nausea, felt like throwing up, he felt nausea. One time was when he was seasick, but the other time was when he fell in love with his wife. He had the same sensations, but they were different in in the Mm. most important way. And what Lewis suggests is that at the level of sensation, we have a much more limited repertoire to register meanings than our affective, our emotional level. So in order for the emotion of love to be experienced in the body, it uses this sort of same set of sensations that would otherwise, in another situation, be produced by a rocking boat. Right. Interesting. So there's this thing, Lewis called it the flutter in the diaphragm that can accompany seasickness or fear or aesthetic rapture or romantic love. You don't reduce the experience to the to the flutter in the diaphragm, but rather the higher state, the affective state, descends into the sensation and transubstantiates it. That's the language he uses. It transubstantiates oh, this, the physical sensation. So, I mean, it's a bit like all of these discussions like Thomas Nagel and other talking about qualia, you know, that there's a there's this irreducible first-person perspective and that physicalist reductionism is is ruled out by that. But what Lewis does is after saying there's, so there's a kind of hierarchy, there's the affective and the sensate physical sensation. And the affective is much richer vocabulary, but it has to descend into the physical sensation with this limited range of possible manifestations. But above the affective state, there's the spiritual or even the supernatural. And the supernatural has to descend into the affective and the physiological. And at each point seems, you know, can be could be reduced to simple sort of naturalistic emotional or physiological things going on. But in fact, it's it's the higher and the richer trying to come down to us through the lower and the more impoverished. And so then he he takes this to talk about the incarnation and the resurrection, what what the risen life will be like. And then he uses the Flatlander story. The idea is that the Flatlanders are living in this two-dimensional world, and they can't imagine what the three-dimensional world is like. So it always has to be interpreted in terms of two-dimensional states. So in heaven, we'll have the real three-dimensional experience that was lacking here below. So basically, he's saying that the spiritual life is not some sort of vaporous thing. It's it's actually more concrete and more fully realized than our emotional and sensory life. And that's that's just classic Lewis. I mean, this is the Lewis who liked, you know, nude bathing and was actually very sensuous, you know, like beer and 
beef and all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and that Lewis is the same Lewis of mere Christianity. Yeah, um, it's true. Well, so. it sort of it reminds me of like it, it's really a conversation about emergent properties. Um, you, <laughs> you get this a lot when when thinking about evolution and, and thinking about the complexity of organisms and whatnot. It's it's sort of like you can describe things on the purely physical elemental level if you want to. Yeah. But if I asked you uh, what happened in that film and you said, well, at one second the bottom right quadrant was mostly at about 700 hertz and mm -hmm. the uh, top left quadrant was at 1350 hertz and then uh, two seconds uh, 24 frames later it was like you can describe a movie in terms of the wavelengths of color that are being emitted by the screen but that is not a very good way to explain a film uh, right. you would talk about plot and character development and beauty right. and whatever right. and so you could say at some point all these things, but like, is that actually the best way to talk about it? Does that explain right. it most fully? You know, you haven't explained it, right. you described it. Right. Yeah. Now, sometimes people will, will make that sort of argument in order to defend some kind of idea of values. Mm -hmm. But Lewis is doing more than that because he's actually talking about supernatural realities, a real right. God, a real resurrection, and all of that. So that's that's one thing that is very special about that sermon. So before I ask you a personal question about writing the book, you did mention listening to God, uh, listening mm -hmm. prayer, basically, which which could be some contemplation is that way, but we didn't really get mm -hmm. into it so specifically. And it's funny that I didn't think to ask you about that because that is such a part of my own prayer life. And, and really kind of what my own faith boils down to is whether or not the times where I feel like God has nudged me in one direction or the other are real or bullshit. That's kind of what it all hinges on as to whether or mm -hmm. not the world is a religious world or if I'm fooling myself. And so what do you want to say about the act of listening to God or, or what does God tend to say or are there any sort of patterns that emerge as you learn and read and, and write about people listening to God? Well, there's an art of discernment. So for whatever reason, the communication is not always readily heard or understood, even by great saints. And that there's a, there's a kind of social aspect to, to that discernment very often where, you know, it helps to have a spiritual director and be part of a community and a tradition. As I was suggesting earlier, that the criteria that Jonathan Edwards always stressed, and William James took it over from him, actually, to test testimonies of religious experience, that born-again experience, whatever it may be, not by thinking you can go in and, and check out whether it really was from God, because you can't, but by by the effects in, in a person's life. Are they more loving? Are they more, do they have integrity? But uh, we're not given... A, a really uh, knockdown proof for any of this. Uh, I think we're we're very much in the dark. I mean, people like Mother Teresa, you know, had these long conversations with Jesus, which led her to found the Missionaries of Charity. And then, not long after she founded the Missionaries of Charity, she went into fifty years of darkness and silence. All of which could be interpreted naturalistically, like burnout, you know, or something like that. But that's not a, a very satisfying explanation. So you've already let me ask you some personal questions, even though you're mm -hmm. a scholar and I appreciate it. And this one is, did working on the prayer book have any effect on your own prayer life? I don't think so. Interesting. Why not? 
what it did, I guess, was bring home what I already believed um, about the objective reality of prayer. And then the process of writing is kind of workmanlike, you know? Right. I might have prayed to get done with this thing, but... (laughs) (laughs) How about if working on it changed your view of God or the divine in general? I mean, I would imagine, unless you had done just so much reading before that you're really spending a lot of time in religious traditions that you weren't raised with uh, researching mm-hmm. for the book. But I don't know, maybe you were already in a pretty sort of interfaith dialogue situation before that. I was because my background was secular. So my okay. moving towards Christianity was was by means of study of all different traditions. Oh, interesting. I want to tie this in really briefly because you have another book you wrote with your husband called mm-hmm. The Fellowship, and it's about the Inklings. It's one of the classes you teach. C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis, Tolkien, Barfield, right? Mm-hmm. Charles and Williams and also. And then Charles Williams, yeah. yeah. I always forget that fourth guy. Any surprising parallels between working on a book about global prayer and working on a book about those four men drinking pints and, and thinking through their faith together? Well, I guess the intellectual vitality of prayer, that because I, I see prayer as, as a foundation of poetry, so much great poetry, the poetry that, that Lewis was loving as an atheist and the poetry that the Tolkien loved and that all of them were reading just as English schoolboys really is either explicitly prayer poems or comes out of the prayer tradition. And uh, that's their foundation. I mean, Lewis originally wanted to be a poet. He wasn't a very good poet. You soon recognized he was a failed poet, but that he was, you know, he was a genius in other ways, and it came out. And of course, as I was saying before, he wrote great things about prayer. I think one of the interesting things is with Tolkien, actually, um, where it might seem less explicit, at least in The Lord of the Rings. People sometimes quote a letter Tolkien wrote in which he said that The Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic book. And people say, what, where? Where's the religion in there? And it's it's buried in there. And that's partly because uh, he was trying to create a mythology that would be pre-Christian in terms of the vast history of humanity. But there is prayer in there. When Frodo is attacked by the ring wraiths and stabbed with this magical blade, he cries out, O Elbereth, Githoniel, you know, which are names for this queen of the of the Valar, who's kind of like a Marian figure. Or when Sam at the end, the moment which Tolkien calls the Eucatastrophe, cries out, O great glory and splendor, and all my wishes have come true. There's, oh, great glory and splendor is like expressing a prayer of right. thanksgiving and wish and prayer are very close. So there's subtle things like that in there. This is such a nerdy point, but one of the things I've read about Game of Thrones is that actually George R. R. Martin, one of the, the ways he thought that he might improve upon Tolkien's world building is he says in Middle Earth, you'd think that there would be like shrines to Gandalf and all these religions. And so Martin basically created all these religions and made his world really overtly religious uh, in a way that Tolkien didn't. And I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons for that, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think the reason Tolkien didn't 
is that he didn't want to have an alternative religion to Christianity, but rather just hints and anticipations and intimations told from the standpoint of these people themselves who had not yet received that full revelation. This is before Moses, not just before Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I guess, though, if we want to talk about the cave paintings and Neanderthals and ziggurats, I mean, if you're trying to do pre-modern humans accurately, you might need to give them more religions like Martin does. But that, of course, the fantasy doesn't have to be just that. He does that in in his in the Silmarillion. He has Mm. a creation narrative and all of that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's fine. I don't care about litigating Martin versus Tolkien. Um, (laughs) I want to go back to that earlier question about how a lot of Christians might feel suspicious of the kind of work you did engaging with all these other traditions. And I'm curious how you think the Inklings guys would have felt about a project like that. I mean, we've talked about Lewis, Lewis quite a bit. He probably would have been pretty interested in that. And it sounds like he probably read William James. And so he was kind of in that world. He he actually mentions the varieties of religious experience in the sermon I just said. Oh, nice. uh, He says that glossolalia is probably one of those varieties of religious experience that we hear about in James. And by the way, I do want to say lurking in the background, like people should definitely read your guys's book on prayer. The next thing they should read if they think this conversation is interesting is William James of varieties of religious experience. I mean, Uh that's really your grandfather, right? In Mm -hmm. terms of this kind of work. And I'll, I'll put a link to that book in the notes as well as of course your book. Yeah. I think of him as a kind of uncle, although he had some blind spots, he was allergic to institutional religion and so on. Mm. Anyway, about the, yeah, the inkling, well, they loved paganism. They loved mythology. Right. Uh, You know, Lewis talks about, pagan mythology being beautiful dreams that God sends in anticipation of of the explicit revelation. And that's Mm. also what I see Tolkien doing and creating what he called a mythology for England. It was meant to be intimations of the gospel. In fact, Tolkien thought all fairy stories are intimations of the gospel and all Mm. mythologies are intimations of the gospel, that it's that deeply embedded in human psyche and and culture. They're the least people I would expect to to have a problem with that. Yeah. Just a couple little little questions here to, to wrap up. Are there any other people doing interesting work on prayer these days that we might not be aware of that you might be aware of? There's a book on petitionary prayer that's by a guy named Scott Davison, which is good because it just recently came out. So it kind of gives you the all the background and, on a debate that's been going on in analytical philosophy of religion hmm. about uh, the different paradoxes involved with petitionary prayer. Great. It goes that goes back to um, Eleanor Stump, who's a great philosophical theologian, wrote an essay on petitionary prayer in the 1970s, and people have been responding to that ever since. But this book called Petitionary Prayer, a Philosophical Investigation, just came out a couple of years ago. I think it's a good place to see wh- where all those different conversations came from and where they're heading. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And my last question is, uh, what are you or you and your husband uh, working on now, if you can talk about it at all? Uh, I'm working on a book about immortality. We're, we've got an, an, a new project in the works that's that's too embryonic okay. for me to say right now for the well, two of fine. us to work on together. Well, Carol, thank you so much for your time. What an thank incredible you. conversation. Um, I enjoyed it. And my, my plan is to uh, track down one or both of your books on near-death experience and chat with you about that at a later date sure because i just think that's a fascinating topic and yeah have a great day you too take care 
Okay. A personal highlight for me making this show is getting to answer these patron slash listener questions. I just, I like, I think I like being a guru thought leader type and I need to check that ego part of it. But also I like the opportunity to have to think through something that's a bit more difficult. Um, and, and this was a really good question. I really love this question this week. To repeat Andrew's question, it is, what are the mental tricks or ways that you seek to understand or empathize with someone's viewpoint you disagree with? Now, the answer that I give, I think, might sound a little bit cynical, but also I hope it will get at a real need for intellectual humility and eventually is going to tie into some basic and kind of foundational teachings of Jesus. But let's start with the cynicism and get that out of the way. Here is the example I will use to, to make this a bit more concrete. You know, there's recent polling that white evangelicals score the lowest of any uh, main polling group on the following prompt, America has a responsibility to accept refugees. Something like only 28% of white evangelicals said, yes, the United States does have that responsibility, the lowest of any group. So let's imagine I'm speaking with a white evangelical who says, no, America does not have a responsibility to accept refugees. Now, ever since I read Jonathan Haidt's work, The Righteous Mind, his incredible book, and uh, also learned about Daniel Kahneman's uh, phrasing of system one and system two processes in our, our brains, our minds, I cannot help but start there. I just, I can't. And here's a real basic crash course in that. In Haidt's words, system one is the elephant. It is the unconscious, hulking, leaning, tribal brain. System two is the writer. It's our conscious, deliberative, more rational brain. Without going into too much detail, basically, system one stuff works very quickly, reflexively, automatically. If you're driving a car and you're much over 16, uh, that is an example of system one. You don't have to think about it. Recognizing a face in a crowd, you don't have to think about it. You just do it. This stuff just works. Now, the fact that it works so automatically saves a lot of cognitive energy and therefore actual energy because our brains are physical and they take calories. And in our evolutionary past, saving those calories is super helpful to our survival uh, because humans have a much bigger brain-to-body ratio than any other animal, and uh, we need a lot of energy to keep those brains running. Now, if we hold a belief in System 1, it's probably not the right way to think of it, a system one belief, a system two belief is probably not so fast, cut and dry as that. But for the sake of conversation, I'm going to talk about it as if that's the case. There are some things we believe in a system one way, and there's other things we believe in a system two way. Either we believe it tribally, reflexively, or we believe it because we've really thought about it or we really have the expertise or something. It's not quite so clean as that, but you know, it's, it's helpful for understanding. So if we hold a belief in system one, then it is unlikely that we have really spent a lot of time thinking about it, deliberating, considering other options, etc. We might hold it because everybody in our tribe seems to hold it, or because someone that we look up to holds it, or because in some sense it just seems natural for us to believe it. You, you get the idea. If it's residing in System 1, then it is not something that we have truly considered all the options around. Now, what about if it's in System 2? This, of course, is our deliberative, slowly logical brain process. Which school should you send your child to or should you homeschool? 
Ideally, this is a system two question. You ask around, you visit schools, you pray about it, you look the schools up online. Um, If what my conversational partner is expressing is a system to believe, then that means they have considered multiple options or they've consulted an expert of some kind, or perhaps they have a lot of experience in the area themselves. So the first thing I ask myself in a situation where I disagree with someone, are they working with system one or system two here? Now let's go back to the evangelical refugee thing. My gut feeling is that most white evangelicals when it comes to refugees, are operating on system one. They support Trump, which, by the way, is also, I think, largely a system one phenomenon, and Trump is anti-refugee. They watch Fox News, and Fox News consistently broadcasts scary stories about refugees and refugee crime. And so here is kind of the first, quote, mental trick. Determine if it's system one or system two. If it seems likely to me that it's system one, then I'll pretty much leave it alone, frankly. And this is where the cynicism comes in, I guess. I will not ask any further topic-related questions, and I will not try and debate or really understand their position because there's not much to understand, right? In the situation we're imagining here, I know that they're in a group of people who, number one, support Trump, and number two, consume right-wing media. And I know that in 2019, for whatever reasons, People who meet those criteria tend to not be very reflective on issues like refugee immigration. Now, they might be quite reflective on abortion, for instance, or on Supreme Court justices. These may be the issues that led them to vote for Trump and feel like they have to support him after they voted for him. So that might be a different question. If we were talking about abortion, uh, they might have quite a bit to say. They've really thought about it. But it's clear to me from the current data That on the more fringe issues, you know, refugee policy, economic policy, stuff like that, uh, most people are going with what the tribe is doing. Now, to be clear, most liberals have also not thought long and hard about refugee policy and couldn't tell you the difference between asylum seekers and other immigrants or what the cutoff is to count as seeking asylum, what the global laws are regarding asylum, how specifically Refugees are vetted for security reasons, etc. You get the point. Uh, Most of us haven't thought about it either. Um, We just know that our tribe is pro-refugee, and so we're pro-refugee. I hope you can see that just because something is primarily a system one thing does not mean it is good or bad, right or wrong. It just is system one. That's just how our brains work. So in the case of the evangelical who doesn't think we need to let in any refugees, I will make a quick guess that this is a tribal loyalty thing, and I'll kind of leave it alone. And the reason that I would really leave it alone is that I'm pretty sure the only way for them to change their mind on this issue is for them to find a new tribe. A new argument about refugees will not solve this problem. Only a new tribe will. And changing tribes does not come easy, as many of us have experienced firsthand, especially if we've had to leave uh, religious communities or shift Um, It has a lot of social and emotional costs to change tribes, and that keeps us from switching tribes willy-nilly. And just consider for a moment that that might be good. Like, that's obviously super evolutionarily adaptive, right? Are you likely to survive and reproduce and create the next generation of humans uh, if you you just quickly change tribes at the drop of a hat? Probably not. 
So it served us in the past to be this way. And, you know, I'm getting a little bit into territory of like, well, how do you change someone's mind as opposed to how do you seek to understand someone? And I can't, I sort of can't talk about one without talking about the other, I think. But what I want to lean on is there's not really much to understand if it's system one. If it's system one, then the thing to understand is what tribe are they in? And then that's the data that you actually are looking for. And so to press on the issue to say, well, how come you don't, you don't think that when Jesus talks about welcoming the stranger, that that applies to us? It doesn't matter. Like that's asking that is not going to get you what you're looking for. You'd be better off asking, why did you decide to vote for Donald Trump? I'm not judging you. I just, I'm curious how you decided to vote for him. That's going to get you way closer to the truth of the matter. So if you can determine that it is system one, then it's better to just be kind, maybe ask general questions about their story. And through that, you might understand their general tribal loyalty better. And that's really what you need to know. Now, suppose alternatively, that this person was a border security agent for 10 years. Now we're in a different situation. That person is likely to have thought about this issue quite a bit. They have some relevant experience, at least at one level of the debate. So this is mental trick number two. If it appears to be a system two belief, then I start asking more questions that are specific to the issue. What is their story? What is their experience that relates specifically to the question? Perhaps there's something that they know as a Border Patrol agent that I don't know and that my own preferred politicians and news outlets are not incentivized to share with me. So then here comes mental trick number three, which is embedded within that move, reminding myself that I am also in a tribe and that the people who tend to speak for my tribe have all kinds of incentives other than simply telling me the unvarnished truth. Now, you might already be thinking, well, Dan, border agents don't deal with refugees. They deal with illegal immigration. That's true. But also, if I'm honest, problems experienced at the border are probably not totally dissimilar to problems experienced in areas with a lot of refugee resettlement, for instance. Now we're getting into some nuance. And this is the final mental trick number four. Once we hit nuance, we are probably on the right track. Find nuance and keep going. Be open as you can once you've found it. To phrase it in the negative, if at any point in the conversation you ask, is there any room for nuance here? And the answer is no, then you are probably further from the truth than you'd like to be. And you're probably just rehashing tribal sentiments and slogans. This is true whether or not you agree with someone or disagree with them, by the way. So if I'm finding nuance in the conversation, only at this point do I think it's actually worth bringing in, for instance, statistics about refugee crime, they commit fewer than natives, or appealing to the awful experiences that allow them to qualify for refugee status, or especially with Trump supporters, that refugees are the most extremely vetted, quote unquote, group of immigrants in America. Only at this point, once we've hit nuance, is it worth showing stats of how much Trump has cut the flow of refugee admission? to consider if this is rational or consistent with basic biblical values of caring for the stranger. Now, it depends on how interested I am, how much time we have, all that kind of thing. But at this point in the conversation, I'm feeling good. Like, we're making progress. I'm learning something. Maybe they're learning something. Um, at the very least, I'm understanding them better, and I'm understanding what I'm going to have to deal with 
if I want to make a case for the opposite of their claim or belief. Now, I mentioned that we would come around to intellectual humility and eventually the teachings of Christ. The intellectual humility piece, I think, should be obvious by now. This process includes plenty of self-doubt, the good kind, I think, making sure that we are not simply repeating our own tribe slogans back at them when they repeat their tribe slogans at us. But how does this relate to Jesus? Well, first, narrow is the way that leads to life. Many people interpret this to be about salvation, and, and maybe it is, or maybe it also is about salvation. But I think that Jesus is noting a fact of human psychology. Most people do not take the time and effort, or they do not have the relevant experience to really know what they're talking about on most issues. There simply is too much out there that we might possibly know or have an opinion on, and it's impossible for us to have spent the necessary time and energy required for serious consideration. However, our brains are wired in such a way that we feel we need to have opinions about most everything, despite that lack of thought, effort, or experience. This is baked in to our brains, and I think that Jesus knew this, pearls before swine, etc. Second, there is so much in the Gospels that pushes against our tribal instincts, the Good Samaritan, the Syrophoenician woman, and Jesus even pushes against prioritizing our own family over others, those who do the will of my Father in heaven are my mother, my brothers, my sisters, etc. And I think that acknowledging unthinking tribal loyalties in ourselves and others, but especially in ourselves, is a good way to remove the log from our own eye. Now, a lot of people push back against using both sides do it language, especially in Trump's America. But to me, it's vital to talk about both sides. We have to do it the right way. Doesn't mean that there are good people on all sides of a white nationalist rally. But it is true that we have the same psychology that the people on the other side have. And I think it's based in Christ's teaching to turn the microscope on ourselves at least as much as we do on the other group. So to review the four mental tricks, and I put these in the show notes as well. Trick one, system one or system two belief. If system one, let it go and just be kind. Show them that people with your opposite belief can be loving and remind yourself that they will probably only change their mind if they change their tribe. In this case, it's better to ask general life questions than to drill down on the specific area of disagreement because you're actually not going to learn anything. Trick two, if it's a system two belief, go specific. Start asking more questions about it and learn their story as it relates to the issue. Trick three, remind yourself that you are also the member of various tribes so you can let your own guard down as you listen to them. And trick four, keep an eye out for nuance. If you're finding nuance, you're on the right track. If there's no nuance, you're probably stuck in mostly pointless tribal warfare and you're wasting their time and your own. So thanks to Andrew for this question. I apologize for the very long and very nerdy answer, but I hope that it's been helpful for some of you. A big thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing today's episode. He is available for podcast editing and his email is in the show notes. Also in the show notes, I've got those mental tricks. I've got Carol's book, Prayer, A History, William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience, The Father Giles, Father Giles, Prayer is the Greatest Freedom of All BBC video that Carol mentioned. I've got a link to C.S. Lewis's Transposition Sermon, which she mentioned. 
And finally, the Scott Davidson book, Petitionary Prayer, A Philosophical Investigation. All that's in the show notes. Of course, there's also a link to become a patron. Starts at five bucks a month, but you can pay whatever you like. You get two at least exclusive patron-only episodes each month and access to the Facebook group, which is just really popping and uh, is such a cool community that's growing up around the show. It's, it's amazing. It's better than I thought it could be. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.